Hello, welcome to Diminishing Returns. This week we've set ourselves a real challenge as we try and pitch sequels uh, to some of the most ridiculous films ever made. Crank and Crank 2. Uh, they're Jason Statham vehicles, really, but what's important about them is the random, bizarre nature in which uh, their plot develops, their characters. If you haven't seen them, you really should. It's well worth a watch because it, they really have to be seen to be believed. Uh, if you haven't seen them yet and you've got to listen to this episode anyway, this might not make a lot of sense, um, but that might be in keeping with the films themselves. So uh, give it a try and let us know how it goes. And don't forget, we are always happy to hear your comments. Uh, best way to do that is through our Facebook. Uh, that's facebook.com forward slash Diminishing Returns Podcast. Um, we get a lot of good discussion on there about the films we talk about. So uh, do come in and join the conversation. Everything else you need to know about the show can be accessed at dimreturns.com. That's our central website. You can get everything there. Please do go and have a visit after you've listened to the show. This week's episode contains spoilers for Crank, Crank 2 High Voltage, Goldfinger, North by Northwest, Wizard of Oz, and The Teletubbies. Enjoy! Hello, we're here again. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at Crank and its sequel, Crank High Voltage. Uh, I am Alan and I am here with Saul. Hello. And Calvin. Hello. <laughs> Calvin Statham. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be really high energy this week. Everything's going to be like... <laughs> Opinions! Ah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, uh, first of all, why are we doing this? Uh, these films? Uh, it was my choice. I did egg you on, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Crank and Crank 2 uh, as, uh, as sort of a, a, new, a new movement of uh, surrealist cinema that I think is going <laughs> to really take off. It hasn't quite caught on yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Crank and Crank 2, made by uh, a directing team called Neville Dean and Taylor, really... Quite unique in many ways, if two things can be unique, if that makes any sense. Uh, but very unusual uh, from a filmmaking point of view, and I think there's going to be a lot to talk about. In many ways, a kind of avant-garde cinema, but within a mainstream entertainment format. Uh, are you going um, with me with on that one, or is it just a load of flashy nonsense? <laughs> I see where you're coming from with regards to the second film. I'm not sure if I'd agree. <laughs> well, no, I think, see, the first one... Can we make a very conscious decision to, like, compartmentalise our discussion into two distinct halves on these? Because I do think I do think the second one ramps things up to a degree that I really <laughs> need to talk about it as a separate yes. entity. Yeah. Yes, see, yes, with, yes. with me, I, 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 with me, there's little to no difference between the two of them. Really? Apart from two scenes in the second one, I, you could have shown me a scene from either and I, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have known. Yeah, okay. Well, actually, having watched these again just the other day, I prefer the first one. Huh. I think it's more, and I wouldn't have said that before I rewatched them, but I think it's more inventive. I think it's more interesting in what it does. Whereas the second one, for me, kind of goes over the line into, right, we're just doing stupid stuff to see if anyone's going to try and stop us. 
I don't know. I don't know I'd, 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 I'd argue the opposite. I'd say that the first film to me feels like a couple of very playful, silly, weird directors trying to see what they can get away with within what is essentially a a relatively straightforward action movie. It's one that absolutely has a sense of humour and, and a sense of irony about what it's doing, but it, it operates on a level that it can pass as a legitimate film for people who aren't looking for a comedy. It walks that tightrope and, and kind of gets away with having its cake and eating it too. And it's the second film where I think they completely like jump off the tightrope and pick a side and just go mad with it. Well, I want to go to Calvin because I know Calvin hadn't seen these films before mm. we came to do this. So yeah. you kind of coming at it with a bit more of a fresh mind. So what was yeah. your immediate yeah. reaction? Well, Sol just used the phrase having their cake and eating it too. For me, it's like they it's like it went to the shop and it got all the ingredients for a cake and then it fell off, fell over on the way out and then the flour <laughs> went in a drain somewhere and then like a fox ran over and grabbed the milk and ran away with it and the eggs are smashed on its face. And it's just like, I thought they were both absolute boring messes i i don't th- i don't think they succeed in appealing to either I, demographic that they're going for i think their demographic is to be perfectly honest you two which is a very small demographic because i don't think it is going to appeal to the kinds of people who watch the tr- transporter style jason statham films because th- from what i understand of those films they do take themselves relatively seriously this doesn't take itself serious enough for that someone who isn't open to experiencing a more surreal take on an action film. Not that I think that this is surreal enough to be considered that, <laughs> but I don't think that that audience is going to get anything out of this. And then for someone like me who, like, Alan, how you describe the films is, like, I want to see those films that you've just <laughs> described. I want to see these surreal action things. But for me, they just didn't go far enough. There are two scenes in the second one where it did, and I loved those scenes, and we'll get to those later yeah. on. Uh, they are the best bits. I know exactly what you're <laughs> yeah, talking about. I mean, well, I'm not surprised that you don't like them, Calvin, I'll say that much. I, I, what I will say, though, is the first Crank is a very popular film, and it is very popular with those sorts of people that you just said wouldn't like it. Um, it's got, really? Yeah, it's got a 7 out of 10 on IMDb, which is a very respectable rating. Out of how many votes? Like 12? Or... Out of 206,000 <laughs> was a, It was a pretty big film, Calvin. Yeah. Like, it was big enough that it got a they, sequel. They put a sequel into production, like, almost immediately, you know? It, it, it went down very well. One, one thing I read about it was when Jason Statham was originally sent the script, he was a bit like, oh, I'm not sure if I can do it because I'm not sure if I can do comedy. And they said, don't. Just play it completely straight and the film will be the com- comedy around you. Yeah, um, and I think that's what the first one is. I think in the second one, Jason Statham is playing it as comedy, and that makes a big difference. Uh, Do you? And yeah, yeah, Jason Statham is definitely playing up to it in the second one, where in the first one, he's doing it. Straight. Which is why I like it more. I, th- I th- he's still playing it as a sincere tough guy, though. He just seems no, a bit he's, more. He's almost knowing. playing a parody of himself. <laughs> Which <laughs> like is why he's I like playing it. The Jason Statham character. That this probably just speaks mm. volumes about the lack of Jason Statham films that I've experienced. <laughs> like To me, it just comes across as Jason Statham. To me, like, these films are my barometer for what Jason Statham is as a concept. <laughs> this is the highlight of his career, really. Though. <laughs> these, these films and then the, the countless trailers you see for you know, Jason Statham is XYZ, choose the a profession. Accountant. Yeah, Jason Statham is. In fact, we, we might as well get onto this now. This is a game that I've I've been playing with friends for a long time, but listeners at home, try it. 
you just you you say you, you do a Cockney accent and you say Jason Statham is, and then you pick a profession, and it always works. It's always something that could be a film. Jason Statham is the butcher, <laughs> the florist. Jason Statham is the plumber. He'll fix oh, your that's leak. a good one, actually. <laughs> anyway, so should we focus on the first one yeah. first? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What 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 happens for for people who might not have seen the the film? Should we do a brief? I oh mean, yeah, there's nothing really much more to say. Other than... Well, there's there's the setup, which is I mean these are concept driven films, and the concept is well or maybe not concept. These are gimmick driven films. This guy has to come up with a load of inventive, nonsensical ways of doing something. So in the first film, I mean the first one's really quite ingenious for just fueling its own. Testosterone. Yeah, it creates a small scale a small scale kind of action film because it's not big explosions and stuff like that. It's oh, yeah. all about him. It's about him having to just keep moving. Because he, yeah. he gets he gets poisoned by a particular drug. And in order to slow it down, he has to keep adrenaline pumping through his body because that stops it from bonding with him. And they just drop in enough science to make that work. Like, we don't need to understand the, how that would actually sort of physically work. It's just, he's speaking to a doctor and the doctor says, look, if you do this, it stops these receptors. And so adrenaline is what you need. It's, it's perfect. It's just the amount of kind it's- of... Pseudoscience it's such to make a great setup as well for just an action movie because it is it's just an excuse then to to mm. have him do a load of action nonsense for the sake of getting his yeah, adrenaline literally up. And just he's doing, doing all of this it to, to get him going that's, and that's he's doing all of this whilst hunting down the bad guy who poisoned him um, it's a great that's a great concept for a for, for an yeah. action film and something you can do relatively small scale on a low budget and yeah. then and then the way they, they make it, the way that they shoot it, is very inventive and very visual and really completely sells the concept with it and, and helps to create that. So it's not just a same old little action film. I couldn't get over how cheap it looked. And I understand oh, I, that yeah. this was a very low-budget film. Uh, and, and whereas digital, I think... Like, yeah. The second I, one I, is I worse, back I to. I was going to say, when I went back to the second one, I watched it on Blu-ray rather than DVD. Mm. It really does look like... Yeah, it hasn't held up very well. It's like 28 Days Later, which was shot digitally and similarly just doesn't hold up at all. They're not even like high-quality digital cameras. They're kind of little, easy shot-bought cameras because the way they like to shoot is they they basically set up 10 cameras so that they can just (laughs) shoot from everything and then they just edit it together as if you're having an epileptic fit. And so, huh. and so that they did much more of that in the second film. What one thing I do like about that first film, which they do kind of lose in the second film, which I was sad about, is you get a lot of projection of uh, things, other things that are going on, like just in the background and things. And so, for example, Chev Chelios, who's the main character played by Statham, he's on the phone to the doctor, and he's running down a corridor, and the doctor speaking on the phone is just sort of projected on the wall. I thought that was really cool. And then there's one bit where he's on, he's in the car and you see the person he's talking to on the phone in the side mirror, just sort of a projection of them again. And I thought that's just a cool, visually inventive way of combining these two scenes rather than like a split screen and two people on the other sides of the phone. Mm. The directors, um, Neville Dean and Taylor, Neville Dean slash Taylor, they're credited as. Um, they also wrote the film as so well. You can't like, you can't deny that they've definitely got a, a visual style, and I'd be curious to see more of their work. Well, I was going to say, are you guys familiar with the rest of their their output at all? Well, I've never seen anything. I else. know, I know, I know. I... Sol and I have definitely seen one of them. <laughs> 
Oh, oh, what, what? Back, back uh, when we, uh, back when we lived together, I, I screened Ghost Rider two for Alan, um, having never seen it myself either, knowing he was a fan of the. Oh, yeah, I've never films. seen it. It's not a, it's not a good film, but it, it does have a lot of these just moments <laughs> of just utter insanity where you are just like, what the fuck is ha- What is this? How did this get? okayed by <laughs> a producer. But like, the weird thing about that is that it was the second of a franchise that already had an established style and they just thought fuck that, <laughs> let's just do whatever we want. Like yeah. at least with Crank they created their own thing and it was like yeah. they were given the the, the, the thing to play with. <laughs> I, I know that their other film as a duo is something called Gamer, which they made yeah, in between yeah, Crank 2 and ones. Ghost Rider, which yeah, it's Gerard is it called Gerard Butler? It. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't oh, seen, I've seen it. Seen but that. He... Where the oh, have you? guy controls Gerard Butler. Like a video game, yeah. Is, ah, it, is it any I've good? I've seen that. It, it wasn't. Uh, oh, God. I can't remember anything about it. I, it wasn't very well reviewed, and I still haven't got around to watching it. But um... I've definitely seen it, but I don't know if I liked it or not. <laughs> I'll have to rewatch it. Maybe. It's not very um, well regarded. I um... mean. I... They've definitely got a visual style, but the thing that really struck me about watching these films, especially in such a close proximity to the Transformers film series that we looked at recently, the Michael Bay ones, the line between Michael Bay humour and the kind of humour in these films is <laughs> almost non-existent. Like, there is oh, no, no difference between... Very... No, 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 there is no difference between... Like, in the se- I'm going to cite the second one specifically here, but there is a scene where they're in a nightclub, and so a, a, a yeah. prostitute gets shot in the tits, and it's <laughs> hilarious because this, like, liquid silicon is coming out of it. There's no underlying social commentary to the humour. It's not satirical. There's no other layer to the humour apart from, oh, isn't this hilarious because it's a woman vomiting. Oh, she's got a cellulite oozing out of her tits. Oh, isn't this hilarious? Yeah, you're right. There's, no there, there's, there's kind of two layers of comedy in these films, and there is one layer which is completely on par with Michael Bay. You're right. <laughs> it's that sort of stuff. The kind of awkward racial stereotypes, like shouting at people in, in broken English. Yeah! All that sort of stuff is very Michael Bay. I think I think the major difference is that these guys are, know full well what they're doing. Michael Bay has no idea that he's doing comedy when he's doing comedy. He thinks he's making no, action. No, no, yes, when Michael Bay has a sassy black estate agent coming in and telling Mark Wahlberg that she's going to get a... Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, he I think thinks. Michael Bay that's what he thinks knows exactly what he's doing in his defense. I do think he's trying to be funny and have some <laughs> gags in his films. And well, and these people think that a, a woman seeing a massive horse penis is hilarious. And wait, I don't... what? What did you say? Oh, the horse penis. <laughs> in the second one, horse penis. Oh yes, the yeah, it jumps over and she yeah yeah. Again, so I'm citing moment, uh, moments from the second one here, but. Uh... Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you see it's cock I mean it, it jumps over her yes. yeah, yeah it's like you a do. slow she's, motion she's, she's, I, I saw it in HD I certainly <laughs> saw it but uh, I think that's brilliant because my, my, you would never see that in a Michael Bay film because it's a giant horse cock and that's the line where because they, they would they... never allow him the rating that's the well, pro- exactly. they allowed him a rating this, this is, is kind made. of you're, at least this is pushing up some sort of boundary at least wasn't Bad Boys R rated or something yeah it must have been I'm sure he's made a film where I'm sure Michael Bay is a big enough director that if he wanted to put a horse cock in his film he could do it if it meant that much to him but he'd rather <laughs> have robot maybe, maybe, maybe even he'd, he'd rather got have some robot level of testicles. taste he'd put robot horse cocks in his films but he'd, he'd never put a real one oh in. you're that's, right oh no he doesn't difference. have any taste I take that back <laughs> Uh, anyway, the, 
Another uh, sort of visual thing that they they do a lot of, and then particularly in that first film, is a, a particular camera movement design that they came up with, which is basically a Steadicam thing, but on rollerblades. And so they're rollerblading af- around, mm. but still able to kind of operate a camera decently. Um, and it's a system they kind of created themselves. And so they use that a lot. And that gives really cool visuals. It makes everything very quick. It gives you the kinetic energy that the whole thing needs and that suits the storyline that they've created. Well, the, I, I did try and find out more about these Neville Dean and Taylor guys because I assumed they were going to have a, his, uh, a background in music videos yeah, uh, because it seemed like that thought. was something. And then I also thought they were from a cinematography background, which I think is probably true. But they basically got no credits before this, or certainly nothing that's sort of substantial enough to have made it on IMDb, for example, or onto their Wikipedia pages, which is about as far as I got with the research. Um, they are credited with doing... Yeah, they've got some camera operator credits and a director of photography second unit yeah, <laughs> credit yeah. on a I mean, film from before Crank. So yeah, I think they right. they would have. That's like... it. I mean, you have to have done something to have got to a point where you get a meeting with a studio to say, "Hey, give us some money to make this film." So you, you must. Mm. They must have done something, but they haven't got like a substantial career behind them of say like like David Fincher for example did so many music videos before he did Alien yeah. 3 which is his first film and so that's how he built his reputation and this being so visual and so kind of suited to a music video style particularly of the era that's what i was expecting and it doesn't seem to be that okay well what what else what else did you guys take out of this first film i really liked his sidekick in um both of the um films efren ramirez Mm -hmm. uh who plays a different character in each one brothers do you know why that Um, came about by the way oh no i I assume he just died in the first one and they wanted to bring him back right i mean is that not no not exactly in the first one they see him you see him out clubbing just in some quick scenes like you see him boom 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 boom. and when they were filming that he was he said oh i've got a identical twin brother shall we get him in and so the We'll be dancing together, and it'll be like, "Oh, there's two of them. That's a bit weird." And you kind of lose, <laughs> and you kind of lose that because it's just quick cuts. But so then, yeah. so then in the second one, they were like, "Oh, we've kind of established that there's a twin brother here, so let's just bring him in as a different character." <laughs> oh, that's so cool because yeah, I, 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 obviously they must replay the same footage in the second one that they show in the first one. In the first one I didn't pick oh, up yeah, on it. In the second one, when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, wow, that's some really good like special effects they're doing there for this." The point <laughs> of that was that film. they thought it'd be kind of funny that the. They're twins and they're kind of grinding up against each other and, and gay dancing together, but they're identical twins, so that would be kind of weird and funny. It's mm. <laughs> Michael Bay. <friend. laughs> I do. I must say, I yeah. do think a lot of... I mean, Calvin's right. There's no underlying satire or intelligence behind most of the humour in these films. It really is just like, oh, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that might freak <laughs> the people out a bit when they're watching it. Let's do that. But I'm I don't know, I'm 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 all for that to a degree. But we talked about Pink Flamingos quite a long time ago now, which is a film purely designed to shock and disgust an audience. Mm-hmm. But even in that there was satire there. There was yeah. underlying mm. social themes and commentary. Not in all of it, admittedly, I mean, but <laughs> e- even... there's there's a there's a modicum of satire. But the, the thing with Pink Flamingos is just by making that, it was a, a middle finger to kind of mainstream yeah. society. That was the point of it. And so it is mm. satiring 
normalcy in many ways and the mm. fact that that is normalcy is what is expected and all that sort of idea mm. and but with with this i don't think they're trying to make any point i think they're trying to make an entertaining film yeah um and but i and do if, i do think they they do work as a a slight satire of the genre if nothing else but is it yeah but is it a self-conscious satire or is it just that someone's been allowed to go so extreme that well that, I, I don't know i like i say it does kind of feel like they were just doing any old shit for a laugh on but set I, but I, I did watch I, I did watch a little bit of the like bonus features and things in, in an interview with the the guys um and it, it was clear that they were taking the piss slightly even in being interviewed it's difficult to judge how self-aware they are. Yeah. Uh, but then you can tell when they're being interviewed that they are kind of aware that there's a lot of ridiculous stuff. They they pretty much say that this, this writing the script for the second film, they didn't want to direct it. They said, okay, well, we'll just write a script and someone else can make it. And then they wrote the script and just kept putting more and more kind of ridiculous things in to see what would happen. Sent into the studio and they and they say in this interview, they're like, like there's no, they, there just must be no way that anyone read it. They must have just thought, Crank was fine, yeah. Because there's no way that the studio would have said that script is okay. <laughs> and then, so as soon as they said it was okay, we're like, well, we've got to make it now. You have to admit, Calvin, like, these are, these are fast, or certainly the second one is a fascinating relic, if nothing else, surely. It wasn't as, I, I don't know if it's... Uh... Maybe I've just seen more of these kind of action movies than you guys have, because it doesn't really... Like, there are two bits in the second one. I don't know if I should hold back on that until we actually start talking about that one. Yeah. Well, let's let's just let's just keep focused on this first one, then. Is there anything yeah. more you okay. guys want to say? Um, because, yeah, you've got Efren Ramirez there. He plays, like, a cool little psychic that comes in for a while. But don't really do that much with him. You've got Dwight Yoakam, who plays a doctor, who's always kind of separate he's always on just on the other end of the phone you do mm. you do see him but he never comes into direct contact and that goes yeah, i was very suspicious about that character for a long time i thought he was gonna have something nefarious he's, i mean he's yeah. he, essentially he's just exposition isn't he but um mm. but then mm. they make enough of a character around him so that you think something more might come of it and i think they do a quite a yeah. good job with that of making that exposition yeah. character uh work and of course there's amy smart as the love interest mm. in both films which is i mean what what happened to her where's she gone do you know what i thought yeah, i thought exactly the same thing and i looked her up and um the, the the most recent thing she's in which i couldn't find any footage of unfortunately is called avengers of justice farce wars which appears to be a, a general spoof of kind of oh, superhero yeah. films and unfortunately oh, i couldn't it's it's not out yet there's no trailer or anything but i i imagine it's going to be absolutely fantastically terrible <laughs> but she no. she was she was quite a big deal for a while i mean yeah, I, don't know. I mostly knew her from tv rather than film but i don't know i i yeah, well, I think she was in a lot of teen sort of films when we were teens. Road so I think trip. that probably helps. And she's good. She does the job well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I think she's a real talent, to be honest. I, I just find it odd that she hasn't been in more decent stuff. You'd think she'd pop up in all the Seth Rogen movies or something, you know? It just... Yeah. And, and, and of course, we, we haven't really talked about Jason Statham too much yet, who, of course, plays... He makes the these films. I've got to say, like it, it would. Not, oh, he's brilliant! It would not work without him. I mean, he's I'm not sure. Yet. I'm sure you could cast someone who would pull it off in a different way. The first one, at least, but like, yeah, 
I think the first one more so. In the second one, his character, he sort of brings more to it. In that first yeah. one, he's just playing the Jason Statham is, the actor. Like but that, that is character. that is perfect. Like That is what you need. And it's, it's like Leslie Nielsen in Airplane, you know? it's Because mm. at the yeah. time, he was a... He was known as a serious actor, and and they put him in that film and just had him play it straight as a. I think it's a very similar thing that Jason Statham's doing here. It's that kind of playing on your persona in a ludicrous kind of almost a spoof kind of movie. Um, can we talk about the ending? Because the I, I really enjoyed the uh, the ending action sequence. Actually, like this film was all played out relatively low budget. From what from from what I understand, from the kind of film that it is, it was very low budget. But then the ending is this sort of a fight on a helicopter, and Jason Statham's doing a lot of his own stunts, and a lot of it is apparently shot for real, like the stuff when they're actually on the helicopter and he's actually hanging off it. And I, th- I thought it was very exciting. Um, and then he and the villain fall out of the helicopter and are falling down to the ground, and he kills the villain who goes, like, flying off somewhere, and then he's just, like, casually on the phone to his girlfriend's answering machine. <laughs> yeah, he's, and he then knows he's going to die, so oh. he's leaving See, one I, last I, little love note for his girlfriend. I love that joke in a second. <laughs> and then in the second... That's such a great callback. But <laughs> it's like... I mean, it's, it's, it's partly there for plot purposes as well but it's so great and the, in the second one when he's like i didn't didn't you get my message and then you just cut to the answering machine just going <laughs> <laughs> like you can't hear anything but that is very telling of the, that is a good example of what the whole second film is about it's like yeah hey you remember that first film we made this is like the same but we're taking the piss out of ourselves kind of thing it, mm. it, it is self-referential it is self-parodying in some ways oh yeah and i and like I, I this is the thing i love self-parody when it's done legitimately but it's so hard to find real self-parody most things that would kind of sell themselves as self-parody are just things like sharknado and it, it it's not that isn't self-parody. You're just making a bad film on purpose and then expecting yeah. us mm. to laugh at it. Whereas this is, they're truly kind of folding the franchise in on itself and then making fun of what they were doing whilst doing it. And it, the only other film series I can think of that does it are the Evil Dead movies that I love so much. Army mm. of Darkness is that exact same mm. thing of self-parody. True. Uh, yeah, and so basically, the first uh, the first film ends with him plummeting, plummeting to his death from a helicopter. He smashes into mm. the ground, and that's the end of the film. Except right at the very end, he opens his eyes again, and so it's like, oh, mm. he's still alive. Um, and so the second <laughs> film begins there, essentially, doesn't it? Well, he's whisked away in a van. Uh, and his heart is harvested. Well, that, that because... is right, right from that very first scene, he's fallen and he's landed on the ground. Like obviously, he should be splattered and dead. So we're already in a kind <laughs> yeah. of unrealistic sense of the world. But these guys come and grab him and, and just shovel him into a van. Literally, shovel him into a van. A guy's there with a big shovel and to prise him off the floor, which is like, <laughs> yeah, as, a, as an opening good. scene, it is just like, okay, we know where we're going with this. this is, <laughs> they're just completely taking the piss. And it, it, when's the first little um, video game thing? Because the second film adopts this kind of 8-bit aesthetic hmm. um, that's just peppered in throughout these kind of little... And in fact, there's a lot, um, of, there's a lot of video game references throughout the whole thing. Like, um, yeah. there's Grand Theft Auto uh, references in the first one, just purely in, like, costume and stuff like that. Uh, and so that's obviously a big influence, which is another interesting thing, which I don't think... This is going off on a bit of a tangent, but I don't think we've talked about this much on our podcast yet, in the sense that we now have 
a generation of filmmakers who have been brought up on video games rather than I, film. I definitely brought this up in our Kong Skull Island discussion, but oh. I think I might have cut it from the... Because from we, the you, you've gone from, you know, directors brought up on theatre or literature to then directors brought up on TV and then directors brought up on, on classic film. And now we've got... That's it. And now yeah. we've got them brought up on, yeah, the internet and, and, and video games. And it, it's creating a different aesthetic. And it's creating a different set of influences that are feeding into film. Yeah. Hmm. And you, you really can start to see it creeping in more and more. The the big ones that strike me are, like I say, Kong Skull Island seemed like a big one for that. Uh, Edgar Wright's filmography, certainly yeah, the, yeah. the last two films are a big part of that. Especially Scott Pilgrim, but Baby Driver hmm. certainly has some of it in there. Uh, and yeah, the Crank films, now that you mention it, are probably one of the earliest examples that I can think of where it's where it's done in a way that isn't so obviously... Um, yes. It's it's not like an overt, hey, we're doing video games, herped yeah. up. It's, it's just kind of, like you say, drawing on the influence of video games. But I certainly think in terms of Crank High Voltage, it is very much, right, you've got a main character who has an objective and he gets power-ups by... Mm, yeah. The gimmick this time is that he has to charge himself with electricity because they've harvested his heart because his heart is apparently a wonderful, unique thing and they gave well, it, it survived to... the it poison. Just, was it just the highest bidder that they gave it to? They gave it to David Carradine <laughs> doing a racist <laughs> yellow-faced performance. Uh... Yes, but he'd already played because of the grasshopper thing. That that's what it is. That's why they've got him in uh... Uh, because of kung fu, um, which are, that might have been racist. Uh, but this is a reference <laughs> to racism. So it's more of a oh, it's, it's fine then. Preferential. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it is very video gamey, and he has to charge himself up now with electricity because he has this artificial yeah, and heart, and he's going to try and find his other one. And his artificial heart's battery pack that he has at the start of the film even has a, a little readout that shows its yes. levels depleting as it goes along. And mm. Um, mm. yeah, I mean, it, it's very clearly drawing on video games, like we say, even more so in the second one. I might have seen the second one first, you know. I'm I think not, you did, because because Alan was um, Alan went to the cinema and came back going on about oh, I've just seen this amazing bit of avant garde <laughs> cinema, <laughs> got to go see it while it's out. So I I went to see it and just thought it was like I was crying with laughter in the cinema. <laughs> yeah, I, I, honestly, exactly. I, I I had such a good time. <laughs> I think I might have been a bit drunk going in. Actually, I can't. That's quite probably remember. about I, right, like, the right state to go into it though. You'd have to be like I don't understand how you can laugh at this. It's just it's. I mean, when you when when you when you criticize the humor in Michael Bay Transformer films, <laughs> like I I don't understand. But there's loads of stuff. There's loads of like re- I, I'm not going to stick up for every last joke in this film because it does go to some very crude, weird places, and I don't quite mm. know how I feel about all of it. But there's <laughs> stuff in it like that that joke or. Um, early on, they they come up against for no reason whatsoever uh, a porn star protest, <laughs> and then there's just yeah. and then there's just some guy saying like shouting, "Do you want me to fuck this car?" for for some reason. Yeah, and that, I, mean, I mean, that is that, that not just like, <laughs> I guess random that. for random sake, random access humor? Is it not just? Like, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, maybe it is, but I, it's random access humor with Jason Statham, like. <laughs> And a whole load of people around him, sort of half going along with it. it I don't know. 
I did really like, I'm just going to interject here and say that I love the bit when um, he's like, his chest is open, he's having this open heart surgery and he's awake and some guy just walks in with a cigarette and like, just like taps the ash into his like, open chest cavity. I thought that was very funny. And and the bit where he escapes is perhaps the most video gamey part of the entire film. It feels like a, sh- a first person shooter yeah, exactly, multiplayer yeah. game with him walking around an arena he, he kills a guy, drops his gun, picks up that guy's gun, carries on walking. And and then he starts whistling the film music as it's playing, which is this <laughs> I did bizarre... really like the music in this one. I thought it, he had a little theme in it. I, I thought I thought the music here was was great. Yeah, it's really good in the second film, isn't it? I was mm. it's is a really strong score for this kind of a film. Yeah. I um, thought it was really good. Can we talk a little bit about, because it's in the early stages of the film that uh, Jason Statham meets a Chinese hooker, played by Bei Ling, I want to say her name is, I might be mispronouncing that. This is a straight-up Michael Bay racist caricature <laughs> comedy character, isn't she? Well, no, yeah. no, 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 it isn't, because this is way much further than Michael Bay would ever go. That's why it's better than Michael Bay. Because Michael <laughs> Bay's Chinese character would be an old Chinese man who can't drive very well, going, hey, get out, get out of the way, get out of the way! <laughs> That's what Michael Bay character would have been. Yeah. I, I mean, I must admit, like... When I watched this film, when it came out, I was 19, and I didn't think anything of it. Watching it again for this podcast, it was a bit like, oh god, I don't, I don't quite know what, <laughs> can't quite defend that, and it does. Kind of... <laughs> but I do think Alan's right in the the kind of low level stuff you'd get in a Michael Bay film is arguably far more insidious than a just out and out outrageous level of nonsense on display in this film. No, I think it's I think it's just desensitized in this film because it's more of an onslaught. It's like eighty <laughs> minutes of that, whereas we don't have like Michael Bay films are eighty minutes of that plus eighty minutes of Transformers. <laughs> oh, and oh god, someone should edit that eighty minutes down from a Michael Bay film. That'd be fascinating. <laughs> mm. um, now it struck me that the second one is so weirdly shot in uh, places because there's there's loads of stuff, particularly when they go into a strip club and that sort of thing. Um, mm. There's loads of stuff where it ventures into that almost Fast and the Furious territory that we spoke about of just like shots of like women's asses and all these things that are meant to be sexy. But yeah, and it's not it's, a joke. It is just no, but I, I don't sexy think it, ladies. I don't think it is because the thing is, it's so unsexy in this film. It's so kind of gratuitous. It's not sexy in the Fast and the Furious and, films. And there's and there's some really unflattering angles, like looking right up at like women's faces, so they've got like big fat chins and stuff in it and i do think it's i don't quite know what they're doing but it's it's shot in a really weird way it's almost like a deconstruction of that stuff in the film it's almost like it it kind of says oh you want a load of shots of sexy women well fine we're gonna do it but we're gonna do it in a way that completely removes any level of sexiness from it and prevents you from being able to enjoy it 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 does and i do think that's a very conscious decision on their part like genuinely go back and watch those scenes and just look at the shots and choice of shots they're really unflattering really unpleasant i saw it yesterday there's there's literally no difference between this and the fast and the furious there is uh, genuinely like i say there isn't these are shots from down women looking up at women's faces so that they're anyone who takes pictures for their instagram knows that you don't do a a shot looking up at yourself that's like (laughs) the least flattering angle unless it's your ass michael bay loves the shot of the ass but there's loads of that 
but it's but it's done in a very different way with a different set of lenses and it's lit in a certain way and the the camera moves in and it's and and maybe it purely is down to the fact that this film was shot on a crappy little camera and it was just a load of people running around pointing the cameras wherever and they weren't taking time setting up but I don't think it is because it, it it it's so unsexy. Like I said, I, I watched um I watched a bit of the interview with Neville Dean and Taylor, and and they when they're talking about the second film, they said we wanted to see Amy Smart strip, so we wrote in that she was stripping, and then they're like going, yeah, they should change her name to Amy Hart because she's hot, <laughs> and like it's it, again, it's like not quite sure how much of this is like they're playing up to this kind of laddish idea that they're obviously parodying and sometimes but then also they did make her a stripper so they could film her stripping Mm. and i'm not sure where the line is (laughs) and i think i think that's kind of one but then if you see that scene where she does the stripping it 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 doesn't feel serious it doesn't feel like it's being shot it's not shot in a yeah it's not shot how you would conventionally it's kind of it's kind of played like it's silly stripping on but but not enough to be an definitely a joke Right, let me. I'm gonna get that scene right up now. It's on my Amazon Prime thing. I'm gonna do it right now. <laughs> All right, right. Just look at the, the choice of shots when they go in. Because there's, okay, there's, okay. there's there's one in particular that really struck me of just how flabby it made the person look, and it just wasn't. <laughs> yeah, nice they were unfla- Yeah, but that's that's what people. That it felt more natural because that's what people actually look like rather than these. Well, that's yeah, that makes exactly. it different exactly to normal my Hollywood point. films. Yeah, but they're still meant to be sexy. Real people are still sexy. It's like, but but whenever you see these kind of gratuitous sequences in films, they're shot like music videos, photo shoots. They're not shot to look like real people, whereas this film kind of does just shoot them to look like real people. And that, right? I am at the scene. Okay, here we go. What am I seeing? Right, Jason Statham's going in the strip club. All right, lots of people spanking bums. Yep, up the bum. <laughs> Yeah, that's sexy. Yeah, yeah, that's she's boobs. That's no, that's not sexy. That's a bum. Uh, <laughs> that one, that one's sexy. That is sexy. Yep, you know, I'm seeing mainly sex. Uh, like not terribly attractive. I mean, these people aren't supermodels or anything, but they're like you know, they're, they're, they're. It looks like the kind of people you would actually find in a strip club. Yeah, because this is a film that is dirty and grimy, and like this, a strip club is dirty and grimy, and and the people there. Yeah, but some people still find that hot. Well, is it? Well, not for me, but for some people, it's the kind of people that probably enjoy this, it is. I don't know. <laughs> like, there's the bit where, um, okay, Jason Statham hijacks a police vehicle at one point, and Amy Smart is stuck in the back with a random lady yeah. who's, like, trying to finger her and, like, all this kind of stuff. And I think we're supposed to think of that as being attractive, because no. why else would it be No, there? I don't think you are meant to find that sexy. I think you're meant to find that funny, and it's very lowbrow, but yeah. then Amy but Smart it's does not... headbutt the woman and, like, knock her out. But why is it funny? It's like... No, I, I agree, I don't particularly She's trying to like rape that. her, and then Amy Smart's <laughs> kind of getting into a little, little bit at one point, and it's well, like, I'm... I don't understand. No, she doesn't. She pretends she's getting into it because she's trying to get the key off her, handcuff key. Yeah. That's something, actually. I'm sorry, just to go back to the first film, you complain about the scene in Gold finger where John Connery is forcing himself on Pussy Galore in the hay, like in the first film here, like she is very very definitely saying to him, no 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 I do not want to have yeah, sex with yeah. you in this public place and he forces it on her and then she goes, alright then fine, it's exactly the same thing It's different because he's not doing it for the hell of it, he's not doing it to get his rocks off, he's doing it because he's going to die. James Bond needed to do it to persuade her to change the canisters in the um, in the planes from nerve gas to a harmless air. <laughs> but the, the the difference is also 
In terms of in terms of his actions in that scene, they are not necessarily condoned, but justified by the the position position he's in. What my problem with that scene is that there's a load of people around them just watching. Where she's obviously, you know, yeah. And as far as they know, she is being attacked by a complete stranger. And so the fact that no one steps in, but then they also just start watching and giggling, that is what's Mm -hmm. weird about that scene for me, rather than his behaviour. I was much more okay with it in the second film, where she is very much up for it, and she's like, it's at the race course and all that. I thought that was quite, quite funny. And then, she's, yeah. and then as she's having a moment of orgasm, she sees a giant horse cock. I mean, that that is comedy classic. What what what, what more do you want? <laughs> well, maybe if there was a point to it, like what's the point? I don't. There's no joke to it. It's just she sees a giant horse penis, and but, but is, is she? It's a, it's a classic the... visual metaphor. You know, when in your in your classic old old fashioned films where you'd see someone uh, making love and then it like cut to a shot of a rocket going off or a train going through a tunnel, <laughs> it's like the equivalent of that. But it's just like, it's, but that's the filmmakers going. Do you know what? It's a big horse cock. So that's the metaphor yeah. you're dealing with. But because it's not. It... The, but it's not a metaphor. It's just a horse penis. It's not like at the end of North by Northwest when they they're on the bed and then you see a train going in a tunnel because that's like oh it's like a parody sex. of like, that. That was that's there it. To, yeah, it's like, taking the piss infer out. something they couldn't like show and this is like But they are showing it. That. Exactly. Yeah, because they're taking the piss. I don't understand like it just it makes no sense. I think you're justifying something that is Have you never been in the throes of passion and then <laughs> oh, like, the horse cock. And then you're you're over you're you're like over the the threshold, and then you look up, and there's like something you don't want to see. Oh, I've had that with your face, actually. <laughs> I was about uh, I was about to say maybe I knock at the door or something like that and go, Calvin, can can I borrow a DVD? And you'll you'll go, oh, has that ever happened? Uh, yeah, actually, many times we lived together for two years. Solid. Yeah, I definitely have. Anyway. Look, and I'm not going to try and defend everything about this film because I think it, I think it is very much a case of them trying to do everything they can and see what they get away with. Some of it hits, mm. some of it doesn't. But like, for example, when Efren Ramirez's new character has um, has something that he, they call full body Tourette's, which basically means he just spasms every now and then, which has no yeah. that has no purpose. It's not particularly funny because they don't play it in a funny way enough, and it just seems there's only stupid there's one or two gags where like he'll try and stop someone and then he just starts doing the tour or when when he's on the bike with jason statham and like basically crashes it doesn't he because he because he just has tourette's like spasming on <laughs> yeah, it. yeah but mm. yeah it's a very weird decision on their part but whatever can can do any of you know why jerry halliwell's in this film well <laughs> oh. um, if plays you were mom. casting a young jason statham's mum, who would you cast yeah, fair enough. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, on to the two scenes. Okay, well, the first one is... So, near the end of the film, he he runs into a, a electrical... Substation. Yeah, yeah. And then he gets into a fight with this guy that he's been chasing, who he believes has his heart. And it inexplicably just turns <laughs> into a kaiju battle sequence with rubber rubber suit versions of the characters. There's a big rubber mask, like Bo Selector <laughs> or something. Statham. Rubber mask Jason Statham, <laughs> rubber mask version of the other guy. And yeah. and there's complete with miniature models of the onlookers that are like zoomed in on looking at them fighting like, 
you know it's, <laughs> it's 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 the it's probably the weirdest thing i've ever seen in a film i think it might that moment where it becomes the kaiju thing and that whole scene it might be the finest piece of cinema i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, like i say i i was in tears in the cinema when we got to that bit i was struggling to breathe <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I mean, the, the justification behind it is like, yeah, he's powered by electricity, so he, he's getting these power ups, and so when he hits the substation, it's like the ultimate power up, and so he becomes a giant. It's like in video game mentality, it, it, it kind of makes sense, but it isn't if like, you're trying like, to justify it. The, the idea isn't that he's actually becoming a, a giant. <laughs> it's it's mm. clearly portrayed as we're going to do this in the style of this thing. And yes. what, on the rewatch, it almost felt like you're meant to take it as like happening in his head because he, he's just yeah. going yes. a bit mental. But it, it doesn't really come across like that. Um, <laughs> certainly, the first time I watched it, it just felt like the film was transitioning into rubber suit motion, whatever you call it. it was... And and the fact that they deliberately make it bad, like for example, the rubber the guy's got a rubber mask on and it doesn't even close at the back and you see his hair sticking out. <laughs> and like the like they say, the little stick figures are literally just little stick figures. It's obviously played for laughs, but like what were they trying to do with it? What was what was their intention? <laughs> Loved it though. My favorite bit of the film. It was, it was, it was well, well, yeah, go on, Carl, What did you think of it, Calvin? As someone who wasn't particularly enjoying the film up to that. Oh, point. I thought it was very funny. I wanted more of the film to be like that, <laughs> very silly and just. I, I would have loved it. Unfortunately, it was spoiled for me just because I I, I know enough about the films. I know. Oh, in the second one, there is that bit where it goes oh. kaiju monster whatever. I would love to know what it was like to experience the film and that just happened because it is so bizarre and like out of like the the humor in the second one. I do like it. It does escalate. It does kind of get yeah. sillier and sillier, which I like. I think yeah. I think it's why I I left the cinema such a big fan of it. To be honest, was just the <laughs> the last. There's about three sequences at the very end that are just so completely hmm. mind-numbingly, bafflingly off the wall that I just <laughs> yeah. couldn't help but like it. And that's yeah. that's one of them. But no, we have the final shootout, which is my other favourite bit, is when the main villain from the first film is, uh, who we thought was dead, is actually wheeled out, and he's now a head in a in a tank, <laughs> and being yeah. kept alive, Bubbling basically, away. just so that he can see Jason Statham die. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. That's it, the last sequence is brilliant, because, yeah, yeah, like you say, he's a head in a jar, it's it's yeah. amazing, and, and then he picks up the head in the jar, and, and drop kicks, kicks it. it into the pool. <laughs> Yeah, which is great. And then at some point towards and, the end, he ends up on fire, <laughs> and then he kills the villains and whatever. And, well, they, and then you, he you sees... say that, you say that like it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's completely justified narratively. He, oh no, no, no! I'm not saying he, like, it doesn't make sense. He, he he goes up to a pylon basically, and and because he needs to juice himself up with the electricity, but the uh, the electric shock sets him on fire as well. Mm. Um, and then he just carries on as normal. <laughs> <laughs> he's, just, he's just walking around on fire and like slightly burning, but not really. Yes. And then he sees the Chinese hooker from earlier who appears and and then starts hallucinating and thinks that she's Amy Smart, his girlfriend. So he like goes up to her and starts like kissing her and all we see is the fantasy version of this and then we cut to reality and she's like on fire as well screaming and running away which I thought was really funny uh, it's so 
I thought that was really, really funny. And then the final, the final moment, if I remember, is him just lifting his middle finger up to camera and telling you to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. And then the credits roll. And then there's a few bits through the credits, but... Yes, where we see that he gets his heart back and is actually alive still. His eyes oh. open once again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the, the the ultimate ending. This is like, it's literally a middle finger to the audience as well. It's like, <laughs> you know, we didn't care about what we were doing. Like, the, the, was there a story even here? We don't care. Fuck off. The film's over. F- piss off. Like that's, I don't like anarchy. That's <laughs> see that, and and that that is why the second film's the better one, if you ask me. <laughs> like, I can appreciate the first film as a more conventionally coherent, better crafted bit of work, whereas the second film is just so off the fucking wall, like just <laughs> bizarre. I don't know. So, so the third film. They've spoken about doing it. They they say they want to do it. Jason Statham every few years um, will say still wants to make it. I think most recently in some press for one of the Fast and the Furious films, he was saying he'd still like to do it. Do you think it'll ever happen? No. Uh, no. Mm. I think too much time has passed. Yeah. Uh... I think I think enough times passed. Enough people didn't get the second one. The same studio yeah. might be more inclined to actually read the script that's handed in, <laughs> having seen the second film turn in. But I but I would love to see it. I mean, they they're not expensive films. I'm sure it could happen. I mean, the other thing is, you know, where the frigging hell can you even go from? There? <laughs> but but I'm sure people said that about the first film. And uh, that's probably a good segue, actually, to to give our own ideas as to to where they could go. Okay, um, so my film is called Wafty Crank, uh, and this is so- sorry, <laughs> sorry, what's waf- waf- Wafty Crank? Wafty Crank, yeah, and this um, best described <laughs> as <laughs> speed in a scrotum. Oh, God. so <laughs> now. I'm not worried about direct continuity or anything like that. Yeah, let's not piss about. So we've got Jason Statham, right? He wakes up one day, he finds out that someone's removed his testicles and replaced them with tiny testicle-sized explosives. Now, the the basic concept is, if he gets an erection, then the testicles are armed. And after that, if the erection goes down, <laughs> the testicles will explode. Now, this gives ah. a really good two-part structure. So firstly, he has to try and not get an erection. And then after inevitably he does, he has to then maintain it at all costs, mm. all while he's chasing down the person who's done it to him. The idea of Jason Statham doing one of his little parkour chase sequences, but he's sort of awkwardly walking along with a huge <laughs> arm sticking out. Oh, that's that okay. an incredible idea. I don't think it's totally in keeping with the, the style of the it film. It is, but, it is completely, um, yeah. So I've got, I've got some, uh, some plot points here. Uh, so at first we've got him, he's got to kind of comedically come into contact with things that would uh, get him sexually aroused when he doesn't want it. And so, mm. uh, but so, yeah. so the audience can keep track, we're going to have what I'm calling a stiffometer uh, appear on the screen mm-hmm. with like a red line indicating the point of, uh, you know, full uh, erection. And that's like mm-hmm. the point that he, and so it'll go up to it like, beep, 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 and then like he'll come down, <laughs> you know, like proper video game style. So I've got some example scenes. All right. So, for example, he goes to a strip bar. He's meeting a contact. The, the manager of the strip bar, he knows him. He's, he's going to give him some information. So as soon as he walks in, he's surrounded by naked ladies. 
um, we can have a we can have a scene where there's like women shoving tits in his face, and he's like having to be go like zen. He's trying to he's trying to imagine it's not happening, uh, and and all this will be measured on the stiffometer, you know. Uh, and then, <clears throat> so he thinks he's right. He's he, he's very clever. He thinks right. What I need to do is get drunk because that that's he won't be able to get an erection then, right? Because he just can't. He won't be able to function. So. Mm. Uh, the owner, the, the the bar manager, goes like, "Oh yeah, great! I've got a, I've got a great new cocktail actually. Try this. It's called the Diamond Cutter." And so he just immediately yeah. knocks them back, right? He's like, "Boom, boom, boom!" Like a few drinks, and he goes, "Oh, so why is it called the Diamond Cutter?" And and the guy goes, "Well, it's 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 because it's got Viagra in it." Oh my God! He's just taken <laughs> three hits of Viagra. <laughs> Chelios runs out. He he grabs the nearest motorcycle, but the vibrations of the engine between his legs is really starting to get <laughs> going. So, <laughs> so what he's doing? Yeah, he's got to think of his. Uh, he's thinking of his mother in a bikini. I thought that would be a good cameo for Helen Mirren, actually. Uh, so he's thinking. Of the <laughs> Um, uh, because he, the distraction of thinking of his naked mother and the drunkenness, he crashes the bike. And, he, and I, I thought it'd be good if he smashes into something and like he goes flying through a wall and he leaves a kind of comedically statham-sized hole in it. You know, and he like like a, like when Wiley Coyote goes through a wall or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, but he lands as luck would have it on a lovely soft bed. He sits up, he looks around, only to discover he's surrounded by naked ladies again. Oh my God, would you believe it? He's landed right in the middle of a porno set. <laughs> now, apparently completely unfazed by the fact that a man has just crashed through the wall, the filming continues, uh, the girls are <laughs> writhing around, they're rubbing each other, they've got their breasts out. Uh, Chelios, uh, he's unable to avoid the sight of jiggling titties, so he closes his eyes and he tries to um, tries to stumble his way out of the room, but... That doesn't help because now he's just blindly grabbing at titties. All, all the, and, and but then all the girls are still wearing bikini bottoms, and and we think that this is just kind of you know Hollywood censorship. We can show tits, but no full frontal. But just when the stiffometer is uh, is reaching crisis point, um, the director uh, suddenly um, he shouts to all the girls, "Right, time to that's enough softcore uh, material. Time to take off the bottoms, get totally naked." He's panicked. He knows that's going to push him over the edge. So he closes his eyes. He goes to his safe place. He's he's wandering through fields. He's climbing a tree, doing <laughs> fun, childish, innocent things. Oh, look, a simple farm girl milk- milking a cow. Oh, that's a bit too sexual. Come back. Innocent things. A, a puppy playing in a stream. What beautiful, innocent ideas. And the stiffometer retracts to zero. Safe. He opens his eyes again. And we're back in the porno set. He looks around. He can't believe it. Every one of those girls is now totally naked and showing off their giant erect penises. Yes, it turns out that this is an all ladyboy porno. <laughs> and immediately the stiffometer whams up to 100%. His one weakness, <laughs> chicks with dicks. He can't resist oh, it. His testicle bombs are primed. Uh, <laughs> now we, we could show this with a crash zoom into his uh, testicles and then showing the devices inside clicking or something, you know, like... Oh, can we, can we see some little CGI animated Jason Statham spermatozoa? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> Jason Statham is the spermatozoa. <laughs> I mean, that that is exactly the sort of thing that these films would do. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, just head on us. 
And it'd just be him, like, ro- uh, like uh, motion capture his face. Like, yeah. he's going, oh, darling, well, what? <laughs> and then, uh, so n- right now, he's fully aware. He has to maintain this erection. He he immediately starts bending over the girls. He's giving them a good scene, too. Uh, and, the, and the porno director, he's loving it. And he's, like, directing his camera and like, I'll get all the action. Yeah, this is going to be great. Uh, I thought this would be quite a good... Uh, role for someone to do a cameo i don't know who do you think would make a good porno director cameo mm. oh god there's so many uh kelsey Grammer. yes <laughs> <laughs> quentin tarantino he might do yeah, he might actually, <laughs> actually he would do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, i'll tell you what like crank crank 2 is exactly the kind of film that would turn up in Quentin Tarantino's top ten of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that yes. right? Uh, so now, obviously, everything he does is now going to challenge his ability to stay stiff. Um, so the important thing is I have to occasionally like, give it a bit of a manual pump to keep it going, uh, <laughs> regardless of where he is or what he's doing. So so he, he could hmm. just be walking down a street. He has to stop to top himself up a little bit. He sticks his hand in his trousers. He's giving it a little, giving it a little go. Um, he suddenly realizes this large group of sort of forty-year-old women staring angrily at him. He turns around. Uh oh, he's right outside of school. All these soccer moms start hitting him with their handbags um, or rolling pins, if that's funnier. What, what, <laughs> <laughs> so he has to run away from there. Uh, now, uh, by this point, he's figured out. Right, he needs to find this particular guy. Uh, he's a kind of mad scientist who designed the bombs. Now, he's not the bad guy. He's not like the one. Who planted it is just his technology. So this will just be dropped in the plot, you know, where he's finding out. So he, he has to find this guy. Uh, but now this guy is like quite an old man now. He lives in an old people's home. So Chelius has to go to the home and find this guy while still maintaining the erection. He's not really into all women, so that's a bit of a struggle. But there is a lovely looking young carer working there. Uh, now mm. I thought we could have this played by Amy Smart. And then we could pass the whole thing off as a prequel. And like this is how they met. Oh, okay. Uh, but that was just my way to tie it in. So now he uses his Statham-like charm to uh, convince this woman that it's not creepy that he's playing with himself. Uh, and, and they talk and she helps him. She shows him where this old guy lives, this old scientist. Now, this old scientist is going to be played by Werner Herzog. <laughs> just because I think he'll bring the right amount of uh, insanity to it. Professor Herzog tells him, okay, look, I might be able to help, but... I need to examine the testicles and work out. <laughs> Although he'd be saying he'd be saying this in his kind of breathy German accent that he has. I need to examine your testicles because they are primed explosive devices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very that's very good. Exa- that is exactly what will happen. So brilliant. Uh, he needs to examine the testicles, but it's it's taking too much time. Every time he's trying to look at it, it's like. Chelios's erection is abating and so they come up with the perfect solution Amy Smart she's going to take one for the team so he starts shagging her in such a position that his balls are just sort of gently dangling down uh, and the and the professor can examine them as he, oh, they're shagging please. and then just as it looks like there might be hope and that we might get through all this Chelios gets too excited and he shoots his goo all over Amy Smart. Oh, and we, and we zoom into the balls. There's CGI Statham going, it's time. And like rushing out. Yeah. <laughs> out of my way, you fucking sperm. So there we are, the sperm. Perhaps we could hear um, Werner Herzog saying, oh dear, you've ejaculated all over. 
Okay, he would he would say, "You have reached the most unfortunate climax." <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So he reaches an unfortunate climax, uh, and that is obviously ejaculation is the ultimate boner killer, as we all know. So the stiffometer it starts to tick mm, downwards for you, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Do you just m- maintain stiffness at all times? You just just go again, don't you? It's the second. Oh. It's the second one that that kills the erection. <laughs> I just I I come so much of the first one. Like, I feel like a pint, pint and a half. Uh, so um, it just tires me. <laughs> Years of smoking have rendered me infertile. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the other one. Impotent. Impotent. Sorry, impotent. Oh. I'm not really though. I should point out. <laughs> Um, the the stiffometer ticks downwards. Chelios is panicked, he, but he he hasn't got time to come up with a clever plan. His penis softens and his testicles explode. But <laughs> here's the twist: because Chev Chelios is so hard, his scrotum was strong enough to contain the blast. So all that happens is there a muffled explosion noise. His sack suddenly balloons up to about four times its size. A and fiery then explosion comes, f- like flying out of his urethra. No, I think just like one little puff of smoke. Just poof, a nice little <laughs> touch. Um, so that, yeah, he's, he's fine. He's alive. His testicles are a bit messed up, but he gets the girl at the end as well, obviously. Oh, happy ending. And then, uh, as, as a kind of mid credit scene, we see him accepting an award at the Adult Film Awards for Best Ladyboy Gangbang scene <laughs> uh, so it's just a little sort of coda at the end there uh, and go, that's it good. that is uh crank three wafty crank ah, interesting <laughs> <laughs> okay so as someone who dislikes the films calvin have you have you figured out a way to steer them into a direction that fits your that i would like yes yeah, your right. i have um so we open in baltimore USA. Oh, it's Pierce Brosnan. And he's <laughs> he's with a, he's with Amy Smart. No, 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 I'm not no no. Um rather we see um Babs at <laughs> aka Divine and uh, <laughs> who is a, a female impersonator living in a mobile home in Baltimore. Now, for those of you who haven't heard our Pink Flamingos web uh, podcast, it, it, Babs is a shit-eating drag queen from Pink Flamingos, which we briefly mentioned earlier. It's a very... It's a John Waters film all about bad taste and disgusting acts, and it's basically about this drag queen and her family who strive to become the filthiest people alive. Now, Babs is at home watching the news, and there's a report about Chev Chelios, um, who has recovered from his injuries, as seen as the, at the end of the second film, and the report is going over all of his exploits, like having sex in the middle of a, a, a race course and all this kind of stuff, and Babs is horrified at the level of filth she sees, yeah. and decides to head to LA with an eye to challenging Chev to reclaim her title of filthiest person alive. So, she's in Baltimore, which is East Coast. She's going to travel all the way over to LA on the West Coast. Now, in tandem to this, we're seeing a story develop for uh, for Chev, which is leading him across America too, because the burned Chinese whore from Crank 2 <laughs> has recovered from her injuries and is seeking revenge against Chev and kidnaps his girlfriend, once again played by Amy Smart, and holds her in a secret location that Chev has tracked down to most likely being somewhere in Kansas. 
Now, the thing for him in this film is that he gains his life force from public shock. So the greater the shock and disgust and negative emotions from the people around him, the more powerful he becomes. So we basically have parallel road trip stories going on. Chev ends up hitching a ride with the kooky parents from the Transformers series. Um, we're going to get in those two. And, the Whitwickies. Um, the Whitwickies, the, the yes. Are the same characters? Or just those yeah, actors? yeah, yeah, the same characters. We're going to cross do over they, the universe. Do they mention their son who's no longer around? Uh, no, he's, he can he's, do. he's not famous anymore. <laughs> well, anyway, it's his parents who are heading out on a long road trip to repair cracks in their marriage. So these these guys are Chev's transport, uh, while Divine ends up on Liza Minnelli's tour bus. So we're going to get Liza Minnelli in to play herself, and the two groups are travelling across the way, but they meet together in Kansas... It turns out Liza was making a pit stop there in order to pay tribute at a ceremony to her late mother's Wizard of Oz performance. <laughs> Here's where we have a good 30 minutes of filth, violence, and degradation as uh, Chev and Divine try to outdo each other in terms of filthiness. They, they need to have sex at some point. <laughs> and I want it to be in the middle of the Judy Garland convention. <laughs> we get back into the plot as it turns out that the... Um, the Chinese hooker was planning to kill Chev's girlfriend by making it look like an accident by replacing the Wicked Witch of the East dummy from an elaborate recreation of the scene from The Wizard of Oz where the house falls and kills a woman. So here's, here's where we go surreal, and we're going to digitally insert Chev and Divine into The Wizard of Oz and have them, like, killing dwarves and defile the film. And, and sync it up know. with Dark Side of the Moon. Ah, yes, okay. And, uh... Uh, it's going to be an orgy of vomit, shit, piss, and other bodily functions, and it's going to be like, a, you know, they go through all the best bits from Wizard of Oz, and they're inserted in there with Judy Garland and whatever, and all that. Um, and base, I haven't really figured out the ending. <laughs> I, um, I, I think it has to end with Chev gets to talk to the wizard or the witch or, or Glinda, the good witch, about like how the ruby slippers will take him back home or whatever. And uh, I think he has to kill someone and then I like, need use some their fucking blood. ruby smoked kippers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, something like that. He needs to kill people so that he can fashion ruby looking shoes out of them and uh, <laughs> then try and get back that way and save his girlfriend. And and then him and Divine make friends. So <laughs> and that's that's the end of the film. <laughs> but who who will play Divine? Jonah Hill. <laughs> John Travolta. <Yeah. laughs> no, no, I wouldn't want him on the set. I don't think he'd get it. It'd be a bit like a it'd be a bit like a bit of a Charlton Heston in Ben Hur sort of thing where you just have to try and convince him that everything that he's doing is just earnest and yeah. <laughs> I've just come up with a much more conventional crank three pitch, uh, for, is my idea. Well, there's, there's no such thing as a conventional. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, I think either of ours could probably be made, and that'd be you know, fine. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Do you remember, Alan? I, I think it was you that I was talking about this with after I'd seen the second one, and I, I think I just basically said like what in christ's name can they do with another film if they do make another one and i i I think i i think the idea i plucked from my head at the time was that he his like head isn't working so he has to cut people's heads off and then put them on his body and change the head every five minutes for a new head and and you i think you said something to the effect of well that's 
pretty like within the realms of <laughs> yeah what they might sounds have quite to do. reasonable really um, <laughs> i've come up with something a bit more a bit less weird than that i had a few <laughs> ideas for this actually uh, another idea i had was that he sweats too much because of some <laughs> weird like treatment for his burns so he has to keep consuming water and there's just like water <laughs> gushing out of him and like as he runs he like leaves a snail trail of like sweat <laughs> and stuff um, and he has to like drink a swimming pool and stuff like that but but um they're not the ideas i've gone with uh the idea i've gone with is he basically has to keep himself really hot so we see him on fire at the end of high voltage and he's rushed to hospital, and they they do a new experimental burn treatment on him that adjusts mm. his body to the intense heat of the flames, which means that now for the next 24 hours, he has to remain at this super hot temperature uh, while the this treatment is, that, takes effect. That's a, that's a good concept. That is, in, that is in that universe that works and makes sense. Of a kind of how do we get this totally hundred percent burned like thing? Yeah, there's an experimental treatment, but here's the catch: it, that's actually a really good setup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, simultaneously, someone stole his spleen while he was under, <laughs> um, so he has to go and save that. Um, <laughs> and he, he's been arrested as well, or something. So so then it's just basically a series of him running around trying to keep really hot while he tracks down his spleen. Um, so he, he grabs he grabs loads of heat packs at the hospital, you know those little things that yeah that, yeah. So he's he's like stuffing those down his trousers and stuff as he runs. Uh, he keeps knocking people out and then pulling them into the storage room and like you know you know the cliche where someone will get changed into their clothes. Mm. Yes. He's doing that, but with everyone he passes, and he's just putting on more and more clothes. So he ends up with like two <laughs> thought, layers on. I thought you were time. gonna say like he cuts them open and crawls inside, for more. <laughs> <laughs> like a tonton. <laughs> he um he passes a, a tanning bed delivery vehicle. So um of course he like smashes it open and blasts himself with the heat from the tanning bed <laughs> and is he at this point he's wearing so many clothes that he's like waddling around and like yeah yeah properly he, he orders <laughs> mcdonald's coffee and spills it all over his lap on purpose <laughs> um he eats a really hot chili pepper um and like and then it, and then he like breathes fire because it's so hot even though that's not how stuff works um <laughs> Uh, at one point, he goes into a gun shop and he buys a flamethrower and he shoots himself with it. Um, <laughs> it, it he, he lies on the pavement in the searing hot sun at one point and just bakes himself. Um, like a lizard. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he gets a load of hair dryers blowing on him at once. I don't know. Can, can you guys think of anything he can could do? Can he stick his head in like a deep fat fryer? Like in yeah, yeah, just shoves his head in the fryer. <laughs> or, or he drinks the deep fat fryer's boiling content <laughs> so it like stays with him while he's running. <laughs> so at the end, he, he tracks down the bad guy, and the bad guy is hanging out in a volcano. Um, <laughs> so he, he dives into the lava river and swims across to the lair. <laughs> uh, and the bad guy's launching a rocket to space to escape and, and live in his outer space lair. Um, so he grabs hold of the rocket from underneath as it takes off and gets blasted with the 
the rocket flames as they're like coming out uh he climbs into the rocket fights the bad guys and takes control of the rocket and steers it into the sun uh (laughs) the sun engulfs him and he transforms into some sort of flame god uh, (laughs) lighting up the sky laughing like the the baby in the teletubbies Uh, very good. Very good. Uh, very good. Can we can we have the main villain played by Werner Herzog? Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Werner Werner Herzog. I've lost it. How do you do it? <laughs> 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 this has been diminishing returns. That was good. Yeah. Uh, come back next week, and we will be talking about sharks. <laughs> Well, thank you, as always, for listening, and uh, very exciting news now, as a little bit of a bonus here, after Werner Herzog made an appearance in our episode there, uh, we got in touch with him, and we have secured an exclusive interview with the man himself, so please welcome, uh, on the phone, Werner Herzog. Uh, Werner, it's it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, Um, obviously we want to get your opinions on the podcast and what we do here, so... Uh, first of all, um, overall impressions of the show? Very talented young people. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, well, do you think the ideas that are created on Diminishing Returns could have uh, an influential effect on filmmakers? As a filmmaker, sometimes things fall into your lap, which you couldn't expect, never even dream of. There is something like an inexplicable magic of cinema. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that's something that we would all agree with. We are film lovers at heart. That's why we do this. Um, and in many ways, you know, we're just like you as creative artists. I discover no kinship, no understanding. Well, I mean, I'm not saying we're at your level, of course, but in principle, you know, we have the same creative drive. What counts is what you see on the screen. All right, then. I get it, right? You're a proper filmmaker. We, we, we do come up with some nice ideas for stories, no? I prefer to see you uh, doing some solid thinking and come back with a coherent argument. Well, you know, we, we do uh, come up with some decent discussions and, you know, we don't always agree, so that, that does create uh, arguments. Uh, anyway, let's change the subject. Look, now you've had a chance to listen to some of our material. It's brainless. All right. Well, at least let me ask the bloody question before you start slagging us off. What I was going to say was... What did you think of your guest appearance in this week's episode? It's not me. Somebody speaking for me as if it's... And, of course, satires and irony and all sorts of things. And I I think uh, it's good that there can be some sort, for me at least, self-irony. <laughs> yeah, okay. At least we found something you can actually appreciate then. Uh, yes, um, of course, that was Sol doing his rather accurate impression of you. His accent, though, remains suspicious. Well, your accent is suspicious, Werner. That's why it's accurate. Well, what do you think of Saul? Do you like what he brings to the show? He grew up uh, without the presence of a father. Um, yes. I- I'm not sure if that's totally relevant. Um, yeah, but uh, actually, yeah, it's it's, a, it's an astute observation. You can, you're a man who's spent his career looking at people and analysing them through film. Do you think you can measure people pretty accurately? I mean, um, if you look at Sol's picture there on our website, 
Um, can you deduce anything from the way that he just just how he presents himself? This blank stare speaks only of a half-bored interest in food. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you summed him up pretty well there. Uh, okay, well, um, what about Calvin? Any thoughts on him? He's very coherent sometimes and really grandiose. And at the next moment, he's crumbling and he's he's defeated and he's. Um, uh, melancholic and, and whatever so he's there's a lot of facets um, mm. in his personality mm. yeah. I, yeah, yeah yeah he's definitely the most emotional of the team i think um you know he's actually the real mummy's boy not Sol. of course then he went out into the world and met me and Sol, and now we've given him a dose of real life i believe the common denominator of the universe is not harmony but chaos hostility and murder uh, well, I don't know. We see it more of a gentle ribbing, really. You know, we've no intention of murdering him. It's, you know, we we just pick on him to make ourselves feel like big men. He only has mockery and contempt for it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he knows it's all in good fun. Yeah. And he can dish it out, too, when he really wants to. His rage is almost incandescent artistic. <laughs> yeah, well, he has a certain flair about him, I suppose. Uh, so, um, what about uh, Alan? How did you find him? He's fighting civilization itself. Yes. Yes. That is all you need to say, Werner. I, well, I know I can be a touch nihilistic sometimes, but I think I, I think my cynicism and pessimism is totally justified. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a question of pessimism. It's obvious that, the, that human beings are not as robust as, uh, for example, reptiles. Uh, yeah, 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 I suppose so. Uh, have you ever heard of David Icke? No. Okay, never mind that. Look, uh, before you go, Werner, uh, obviously we want to say thank you uh, for listening to our podcast. And I didn't even know what a podcast was. And I said, how do I access this uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, well, well, now you know how to listen to podcasts. Uh, ours is hosted through SoundCloud, of course. Um, it's also available on iTunes and YouTube. Uh, most importantly of all, you can get it through our very own website, which is... We don't know. And the good thing is that absolutely nobody knows. No, Werner, that is not a good thing. And you do know because I sent you the link to dimreturns.com, uh, where we host all our episodes and post reviews and blogs and other stuff. Now, you did say you would have a look at it. Uh, how does it seem to you? It looks pretty good. They seem to be heading in the right direction. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're um, we're pretty happy with the way things are going, yeah. So they're, they're well off. We should envy them. No, 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 not at all. Um, no, we don't make any money from this. In fact, it, it costs us a lot to maintain everything, not to mention the time we have to put into it to, you know, to keep it up. Uh, but, you know, we're not in it for the money, Werner. Uh, I mean, we'd like to be, but no one will give us any. I think you, you should not keep it. You should destroy it. I think that's what you should do. Because it will be the white elephant in your room all your life. No, no, no. We enjoy it. And maybe one day we can make it big enough to start annoying people with adverts for Audible. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Werner Herzog, thank you very much for joining us here on the Diminishing Returns podcast. And uh, I'm sure one day we'll do an episode looking at your filmography. But until then, if I give your website a little plug, would you allow us to call ourselves the first film podcast officially endorsed by Werner Herzog? There is absolutely no problem with that. Sweet. 
Right, Werner Herzog, thank you very much. And listeners, do head over to wernerherzog.com to keep up with all the latest information about Werner and his films. And from us, goodbye, more fun and frolics next week. <laughs>